0: The scripture reading for this morning is Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. why don't we begin with prayer heavenly father as we come before you now we pray that you would be working by your spirit through this portion of your word open our hearts O god help us to receive the word planted that it might bear fruit and grow grow in and among us and we ask this in jesus name amen All right, so we're at the end of a very uh, brief series on the vision, mission, and ministry commitments of Grace Church. Uh, Last week we looked at the mission of Grace Church, which is out of love for Jesus and people, our mission is to make mature disciples of Jesus Christ in ever increasing numbers. Two weeks ago we looked at our vision. Grace Church is a diverse, growing family of Christian believers who celebrate God's grace and proclaim the message of Jesus Christ in word and deed to the communities of Greater Rochester and around the world. This week, we end the series by looking at our ministry commitments. Now, I'll list them as we go along through the sermon, but in short, our ministry commitments simply articulate our commitment to the ministries that we believe Christ is calling his church to be faithful in executing, no matter, no, no matter what, no matter how big or small the church is, no matter whether it's uh, you know, this country or some other country, no matter what kind of culture, no matter whether uh, it's in the city or in the suburbs or in a, in a rural community, from the, from the moment of the first century church until the, the day that Jesus Christ returns. We believe that our ministry commitments reflect what the Bible says churches need to be about in order to be healthy, faithful, faithful, churches. Now, uh, ministry commitments, then, this morning. Uh, in a way, you're going to get a peek under the hood of what it means for the church to be the church. Now, I'm not a car guy. Like, not at all. Um, I remember when I was a kid, my dad was talking to someone about something that was wrong with his car, and, and he said, maybe it's the canibber bearing. And he laughed, and then that guy laughed, and I laughed, but I was like, what is... What's a carnivore bearing? Right? I mean, I'm not a car guy, but my buddy John is. And some of you are wondering, is there a carnivore? There's no such thing as a carnivore bearing, just so you know. Um, my buddy John is a car guy. John and I went to seminary together. Uh, we graduated and went off in different directions, but we stayed, you know, Facebook connected for whatever that's worth. And, and, and he loves cars, especially Ferraris, especially older Ferraris. I don't think he owns one. I don't think he's that kind of a pastor. But he certainly admires them from all the pictures of older Ferraris that he posts on his Facebook page. So as I was, you know, thinking about an illustration for what it's like to look under the hood of the church, I naturally thought of my buddy John as I thought about what it would mean to look under the hood of a car, especially if you know really nothing about cars. It's, it's possible, if you don't know much about cars, to really fully appreciate everything that's going on. In fact, you might start looking for things in the car that aren't supposed to be there, like a canaver bearing, which doesn't exist. So I reached out to John. I said, John, what makes a Ferrari a Ferrari? And not surprisingly, I learned some new things about cars. He didn't tell me what I thought he would tell me. The engines are so big he said, the engines actually aren't that big. The engines are pretty small, really subtle in terms of the engines. And he didn't tell me about the aerodynamics of the, of the cars. He didn't tell me about the, the handcrafted quality or anything like that. He told me about the infrastructure of the car by telling me about another Italian company, the company Touring Superleggera, which I may be pronouncing that wrong, but I don't know anything about cars, so that's okay. I can do that. Touring Superleggera created a special method of car construction that is invisible from the exterior. You can't you can't see it. But if you're able to take off all the exterior panels of say my buddy John's favorite car, the 1948 Ferrari 166 MM, you would discover an intricate cage of tiny diameter metal tubes that, that look like a complex, ornate structure or sculpture that makes the car lighter and faster than anything else around it, at least on the road at the time. So John would say, what well, makes a Ferrari a Ferrari is the highest possible commitment to the things seen and unseen that make a sports car a premium sports car. Pretty much the same thing with the church. What makes the church the church? The highest possible commitment to those things seen and unseen that make a church a healthy and by God's grace growing church. So let's jump in. We believe there are six ministry commitments, six ministries that that the Lord calls his church to be about in every age, in every place, all the time. Those are, five of them are uh, in embryonic form in this passage in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. One comes later. Um, They are worship, discipleship, fellowship, mercy, outreach, and team ministry, Right? So worship, discipleship, fellowship, outreach, and team ministry. I can only give like two or three minutes to each one of these because we are also going to celebrate the ordination and installation of uh, Daniel Sweetser and Ken Avery to be ruling elders in this church. So we'll have that be something that we transition to at the end of this brief reflection on these ministry commitments. This could be a six-week series. I'm going to condense it to 15 minutes. We'll see. I'll do my best. All right, so first, ministry commitment, worship. The church is called to worship together. Look with me back in chapter, uh, Acts chapter two at verse 42. It ends Verse 42 ends with that phrase the breaking of bread and the prayers. The, the prayers. The article, the, there, is something that commentators point to, something that's perhaps more liturgical type language. So, the breaking of bread there is probably referring to the Lord's Supper, which often took place in the early church in the context of a meal, of a fellowship meal. Um, The prayers are probably referring to set prayers that occurred in the context of the church gathered together. You can look at verse 46 and see where it says, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So there's this picture of the church gathered for worship corporately in a place and then also scattered and meeting in homes throughout the week. And they were there to praise God. Verse 47, they were praising God. The church is called to worship together. Our worship, we believe, the the scriptures are calling us not only to be worshiping together, but to be worshiping together in a comprehensible way. Now, I've, I've told you before in joking, I mentioned this in the Sunday school class a couple weeks ago, you know, if a denomination had a life verse, like some of us have life verses, the Presbyterian life verse would be, let everything be done decently and in order. <clears throat> but there's a reason for that in Scripture. and It has everything to do with the way in which a worship service is to be accessible and comprehensible Be clear and, in a sense, simple in communicating the story of God's glory, the story of what God has done to rescue a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation through the atoning death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, in whom we place our faith. For salvation, right? This is this is what if if you were to look through this is why this could be a sermon in itself. We could just break through our liturgy the way we structure, which and every church has a liturgy, right? Every church orders their church service in some way. It's either more of a higher liturgy or a more informal liturgy, but every church has a liturgy. Our liturgy tells a story, and that could be a whole other service to talk about how the service begins with the way that our salvation began, God calling us into worship god calling us into a relationship with him every week the call to worship is a call back into reality that we're created to glorify god and enjoy him forever it's all reflected right here in our liturgy in our worship service so that would have to be another sermon but In 1 Corinthians 14, the apostle Paul tells the church in Corinth, they have got to make sure that what's happening in their worship service is clear because he assumes that non-Christians are present among them. And he says, if what you're doing in worship is incomprehensible, how will they possibly know anything about the God that you're worshiping? And then consequently, how would they possibly put their trust in Jesus Christ and be saved? And so Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 14 is to make sure that what's happening in the worship service is comprehensible. In that sense, we believe that our worship not only needs to be something that's glorifying to God and something that's edifying or something that helps us grow in our faith as Christians, but also something that is comprehensible, accessible, able to point to in an understandable way who Jesus is and the salvation, the forgiveness that he offers to all who look to him in faith. So we want our worship services, and we strive to make sure our worship services are not only biblical and reverent and joyful, but also accessible so the gospel can be presented clearly. And by God's grace, people will come to give glory to God who never before knew him as their savior. So worship first. Second, discipleship. Look, at the, look back at the passage, verse 42 again. It says, "'They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching.'" Now, the, the, the apostolic message, the gospel that the apostles, those eyewitnesses were um, ro- ro- proclaiming about what they saw and witnessed and, and who Jesus was, his person and his work, his resurrection and his present reign, like all the, the apostolic message, they were devoting themselves to. They were committed to growing in their understanding. They were, they were Christians, they were, they were saved, but they were committed to banding together in order to co- grow deeper in their understanding of God's word. Now, last week, I'm talking about our mission. We talked in particular about the call to make disciples from Matthew chapter 28. That that is the one command that's present in the Great Commission. That the disciples were to go baptizing. They were, they were to be going baptizing, right? Teaching everyone to obey all that was commanded. But the, the, but the thing they were specifically commanded to do was to make disciples. All those other things were bound up in what it means to make disciples. So to be baptized, you're baptized into the church. Baptism is a sign of entrance into the covenant family of God. That teaching takes place as part of the covenant family of God. This is where we grow. We grow together. We have our individual times throughout the week of of reading scripture, of being in prayer, and and we gather, I hope, I know most of us do, and I hope as many of us can, will gather in growth groups for that smaller community of of fellowshipping around the word of God together. But in the end, the primary way in which the scripture points us to this, this important Communal gathering, this gathering of the family of God for worship also entails an opportunity for discipleship. Right now, I'm preaching the word of God to you. Right now, you have the opportunity to grow as the apostolic message, the apostle's message committed to God's word is being, committed as part of God's word is being proclaimed to you. Now, we believe scripture also teaches that this gospel that saves people, that saves us, is the same gospel message by which we grow. We don't begin with the message of salvation through faith in Christ and then move on to something else, but that rather that same gospel message that saves is the very means by which we grow. There are all kinds of passages in the New Testament that point to this. Let me just reference three of them real quick. The first is from Romans 1.16. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, you hear that word salvation, and you may think, oh, that's the beginning of the Christian life. Salvation is being forgiven and and being reconciled to God. But that's not how Paul especially uses that word salvation in his letters. When he uses the word salvation, he's referring to the whole package. He's referring to, yes, that initial forgiveness of sin so that you're able to be just in God's sight, forgiven. He's also pointing to being adopted into God's family, having God as your father. He also bounds up within that word salvation, the idea of sanctification, of, of growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. He also incorporates in that word um, salvation, what the scriptures refer to as glorification. That is the end of the journey, actually being completely made like Christ and being with Jesus and having fellowship with him on the new heavens and the new earth. Salvation is everything, it's the whole package. And Paul in Romans 1 16 says, the gospel is the power of God for all of that, not just the beginning. In Titus 2 verses 11 and 12, Paul says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us or teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's God's grace that teaches us to live this way. Colossians 1, 5, and 6, Paul says this, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world as it also continues to do among you since the day you heard it. So he's, he's writing to Christians, he's writing to the church, and he's saying the gospel message that I'm proclaiming, it's growing all throughout the, the world and it's continuing to grow among you. That's, that's not a, a dichotomous statement. He's not applying the gospel only to You know what we consider evangelism, sharing the gospel with those who don't believe, he's applying the gospel to growth among actual Christians in the church. Reinforcing what he said back in Romans chapter one, verse sixteen. So therefore, our discipleship ministries or our, our teaching ministries at the church, we believe if we're gonna be faithful to what God says concerning concerning that ministry commitment, which is so fundamental, making disciples we believe that our teaching ministries need to make sure that we're helping people apply the gospel to all of life. Not moving on from the gospel, but applying it in every area of life that they may know God's word and pursue holiness in Christ out of gratitude for God's grace. So worship, discipleship, fellowship, Notice the depth of fellowship that these early Christians... I mean, this is like almost immediately, right? This is like the beginning of the church after Pentecost, right here. It's in embryonic form. Everything that Paul's going to unpack through his letters of of taking what's happening there, the church in its very beginning stages, and then applying it as churches become more established over time in in his later letters, it's here, it's right here. So you see there their commitment to deep fellowship. Verse 44 says this, and, they, and, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. I'll get back when I talk about mercy to the all things in common and how they were selling their possessions. But just notice at the first, first part of verse 44, And all who believed were together. They were together in worship. They were together in the, throughout the week in the breaking of bread with one another and, and sharing meals together. There was an opportunity for these people to know one another and be known by one another. This idea of fellowship is, you, I've said this so many times, it's not, you know, fellowship is not coffee after the church service. That's just like the surface of fellowship, it's just an opportunity to begin to go deeper into what fellowship entails, which is those, that, that depth of relationship of knowing and being known that, that comes as people who maybe the only thing they share in common is their faith in Christ. Begin to go deep in their relationships with one another. When Paul wrote in Romans chapter um, 17, no, 15, verse 7, when he wrote this, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you hear the depth of fellowship, of welcome that he's calling us to? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Now, I mentioned these things, these three first. I mentioned worship, I mentioned discipleship, and I mentioned fellowship first because that word devoted that you see right at the beginning of verse 42, and they devoted themselves governs those three ministry activities. They devoted themselves to the worship, to discipleship, and to fellowship. That word devoted, guys and gals means that they were deeply committed to making church work. That word devoted means to demonstrate an ongoing persistence and perseverance. They were persistent in their effort to make church work, to experience in in their life together all that God would have them experience as God's people adopted into his family and brought together in their time and place to be faithful in doing all that God was commissioning them to do in taking the gospel to the nations. They were devoted to these things. They were persistent, and they persevered through trials, through hardship. You continue to read the book of Acts through persecution as these early Christians who were meeting in Jerusalem were persecuted first by Jews and then driven out into the nations, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, ultimately. Right? but they were devoted to these things. Every Christian is called to be devoted to these things, to not cut and run when things get hard, but to be devoted to one another out of reverence and love for Jesus. So worship, discipleship, fellowship, but let's move on then to mercy. Notice the way in which they cared for one another. Verse 44 says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this is not a Christian commune where no one owned anything. That's not what this is referring to. They still had their possessions. They sold their possessions whenever there was a need, but they didn't just let go of all their possessions and pull them together. Later in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul will instruct Timothy to instruct the rich in the church in Ephesus to be generous with their wealth. He doesn't say, Timothy, you tell all those wealthy people there in that church in Ephesus to sell everything, to give away everything that they have and to live as poor people. He says, command them to be generous. And that same kind of generosity is seen here in this passage. It's something that characterizes the church, a, a commitment to sacrificially care for one another, to love one another. It may mean, you know, it, we, we talked about this in the, in the men's breakfast yesterday. It may mean living a different kind of lifestyle in order to have an opportunity to bless others, to care for other people. Um, Paul in Galatians 6.10 says, "'Do good to everyone, "'especially those who are of the household of faith.'" So it's not limited, this call to mercy. It's not limited only to those within the family of God, but to any that God brings along our path. That's the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Who is your neighbor? Who is it that you're called to love as part of this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? The point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that your neighbor is anyone that God brings along your path. That's your neighbor whom you're called To love. And so, our our care ministry here at the church, as a reflection of our commitment to mercy, is bringing people together in order to care for, show mercy to those who are in need of it within the church, and also anyone that God brings along our path. Because we believe that those who have been shown mercy by God respond by showing mercy to others. It is part of the inevitable outcome of being saved by grace and by grace alone. So worship, discipleship, fellowship, mercy, fifth, outreach. Outreach. And we we talked about this as part of our sermon from Matthew chapter 28 last week as well. But look at verse 47 back in Acts chapter 2 here. Luke writes, they were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think that's just such a fascinating inclusion in the text. They had favor with all the people. You look at the early church. You look at the way the church in Acts functions. You look at the persecution that they experienced for living distinctly Christian lives. They wouldn't succumb to the idolatry around them. They worshiped God and God alone. When everyone else around them was, was you know, fully committed to sexual promiscuity, they were fully committed to being faithful to sex only within the context of marriage, one man, one woman until death do them part, right? Where everyone else was stingy around them, they were promiscuous with their wealth. I mean, they, they lived such a counter-cultural life in their society, and yet, Luke tells us, they had favor with all the people. When you, when you look at Acts chapter eight, when that persecution that I referenced in Jerusalem began, when, the, when Jews began persecuting Christians, as soon as they realized what these Christians were saying about Yahweh, about God, that Jesus was God and he was crucified and died and rose from the dead. As soon as that began to be, you know, fully comprehended and known, those early Christians were persecuted. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through, verses 1 through 4 talk about that persecution. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says that those who were scattered, those who were being persecuted and driven out, went about, and the, and the text says, let me double check and make sure I know what the text says. Hold on. a 4 Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. But Luke does not use the traditional, the normal Greek word for preaching there. He uses a word that has more to do with conversing. I think it was J.I. Packer, although it could have been that other great Anglican, John Stott. Someone wants to correct me. Um, I'm not sure which now, but one of them referred to this, or translated this as the early church, those early Christians, went out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the Earth, gossiping the gospel." They just talked about Jesus. They just talked about this. In fact, first Peter, 3:15 through 17, you'll read Peter talking about the fact that we're all to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us, and yet to do so with gentleness and respect. And you, so you can picture that dynamic happening. Here are these people who are being persecuted for their faith, and yet they're just talking about this Jesus that they love, and they're willing to do that whenever anyone would ask, why, why is it that you're so filled with hope? That same approach to outreach applies in every age, and it applies today as well. The other thing that church history tells us is that when all of Roman society was moving away from need, moving away from famine, moving away from disease and death, Christians were moving in. When Roman citizens were putting their babies on the scrap heap because there was another girl, they didn't want a girl, so they put them out to die, Christians were coming in and adopting them and making them their own and raising them. So the early church was characterized by what we could call, and what we do call around here, word and deed evangelism, word and deed outreach. We're committed to taking the truth of the gospel, both by the things that we say and the things that we do, with a desire to, even though living distinctly Christian holy lives, build bridges and not walls between us and our neighbors. With a deep desire that they will come into church, that they will hear the gospel, that they will hear the, hear the message of forgiveness and reconciliation with God and be saved. So, worship, discipleship, fellowship, mercy, outreach. Finally, team ministry. Now, this, you don't see this here in this passage necessarily. I guess you could, you could try to tease it out by implication. But you definitely see it when you get to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That's where the Apostle Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we are committed to team ministry because we believe that on the one hand, God has gifted everyone here in this church to contribute to the work that God is calling this church to do in this time and in this place but that includes men and women whom he has gifted to lead. And so we believe that the ministries that I've referred to require organization. They require teams providing leadership to those who are doing the work, and those who are particularly gifted to lead in those areas are gonna be part of those teams that provide that leadership. But everyone here has a gift. That's what I, I really want you to leave this sermon, which is drawing to a close. With, with two things, I hope. One is like a greater love for the church. I love the church. I love, there's, there's nothing like the church in the world. There never has been and there never will be anything like the church of Jesus Christ. We get to, we have the opportunity to be a part of this amazing institution, organization, organism, body, right, <clears throat> family, that is the church. We have the opportunity to participate in that work in our brief and momentary life that we have together. And, and this, the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ, who has said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, has said, I will use the people within each church to accomplish my building project. That's, a, that's amazing. We get to be a part of that. It can be part of our joy as Christians to use the gifts that God has given us, spiritual gifts, grace gifts, gifts that are bound up with being made his children, specifically for the purpose of being part of Jesus' building project that is his church. And he said he'll do it. We get to be a part of it. Every one of us is gifted in some way in some way to serve. And I hope that you'll begin, if you haven't already, that you'll begin to ask, how is it, where is it, when is it, that I can begin to use the gifts that God has given me, because I'm his child, to be part of Jesus's building project here at Grace Church. Of course, as beautiful as a Ferrari is, it won't go anywhere without fuel. And it better not just be any fuel. It better be high-octane, high-performance fuel. And as beautiful as the church is, it won't go anywhere without fuel either. And the fuel of the church is that high-octane blend of prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. God calls us to pray for this thing that he has already said he's going to do that he has poured out his spirit to accomplish. He invites us to be part of the means to that great end, not only by using the gifts that he has given us, but by devoting ourselves to prayer to that end. So worship, discipleship, fellowship, mercy, outreach, team ministry, all fueled by prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. In the end, what makes a Ferrari a Ferrari is everything that stands behind the name Ferrari. All the craftsmanship, all the beauty, all the technology, all the history that comes with the name is what makes the car what it is. Everyone involved with making a Ferrari, in a sense, has to live up to the name, has to honor the name. Well, the the name that is placed on the church is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's his church. It's not my church, it's not the elders that are about to be up here. Um, being either ordained and installed or praying over them. It's not their church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. His name is placed upon each one of us as individuals and on this body, this family that we are together. He has given us spiritual gifts to live up to this calling, to reflect faithfully in the world. His name as we're gathered together worship discipleship fellowship mercy outreach team ministry fueled by prayer and the power of the holy spirit none of these in and of themselves are incredibly extraordinary they're just simply the things that God has called his church to do in every day and age. But because Jesus has called his church to these things, we can trust that even as we are faithful in the ordinary work of the church, he is able to do extraordinary things. And so we call on him to do so for his glory and for the advance of his gospel in the world. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do, we do pray that you would give us a greater... Um, vision and, and burden for the work of your church, <clears throat> not because you know you're ch- not because you need us. You don't. Um, you're going to build your church. The gates gates of hell will not prevail against it. This gospel will go forth to all nations, and then the end will come. That will happen because you said it will happen, and and your resurrection confirms that everything you ever said is true. And yet we are privileged to be called and not just called but gifted, to be able to participate in the work you are doing in this particular place, at this particular time, in our brief mist that that appears for a little while and then vanishes life that we enjoy together. So, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to love your church precisely because we love you and you love your church. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.